This podcast is brought to you by the Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. Your host is editor Mike King, and this episode is kindly supported by Fordo. Shipping products as easy as sending emails. In this episode, we'll examine where rates are going as we hurtle towards the mother of all peak seasons. Is there any chance that Chinese New Year 2022 will bring order to ocean shipping, or are we already turning to 2023 for some respite? We'll look at the economics of shippers chartering vessels, and we'll ask why it is only in the UK that a lack of truck drivers is causing acute shortages of everything, including fuel. In this episode, I'll be joined by John Pearson, CEO of DHL Express, Paul Page, editor of the Wall Street Journal's Logistics Report, Lodestar founders Gavin Van Marl and Alex Lenane, Bryn Atherton, commercial director of All Seas Global Logistics, and freight procurement expert Bjorn Van Jensen, Electrolux veteran and current VP of Advisory Services at Sea Intelligence. Anybody right now who says, well, we, we think the market will normalize the Q1 or Q2 of next year, whatever they're smoking, I would like it if they could send me some of it, because I need it too. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Yes, you've heard it right. It has been a crazy year, and this episode is indeed called The Mother of All Peak Seasons. And they're not my words. They're the words of one of my very distinguished guests who we'll hear from shortly. But first, let me welcome two no less distinguished guests, Lodestar founders both. It's the fabulous Alex Lenane and the venerable... Gavin Van Maal. Hello, guys. Hi. Good morning, Mike. Right, we've got a lot to cover this week, but first up, what's going on with rates? We have a, a slight lull from those ridiculously high levels on the ocean, and air freight is, uh, well, I, I'll leave it to you guys. Go ahead. Well, I'll just very briefly update you on the rate situation, Mike. I mean, according to the recent FBX, um, I should put this in context. We're in Golden Week at the moment, so there is a slowdown in, in factory production. Um, in volumes coming out of China. But so we are seeing a slight reduction in rates out of Asia to the US West Coast and the East Coast of around about 7%. Rates are up slightly into the Northwest Europe, but it's still at very elevated levels. Alex, how is Golden Week having any impact on the air freight market? Well, I think air freight's finally getting its moment in the sunshine after all the focus on sea freight. Rates have started to climb earlier than they normally would for a peak. So, um, According to Baltic Air Freight Index, the September rates from out of Shanghai have gone up 73% year on year to Europe and 116% higher year on year to North America. Um, we're hearing things of uh, 25,000 per hour to charter an aircraft, 747. Forwarders are now offering airlines $20 a kilo, ex-Asia. So the, the rates are, are starting to move up, but there is a problem, which is capacity, really. So... The load factors are, are saying that they're already on their way to being pretty full. So there's not an awful lot of leeway in the market for forwarders and shippers. Some carriers like United are putting back cargo-only capacity. The US travel restrictions ease in November. So there's a bit of a thought that the transatlantic market may have more belly capacity available. But to be honest, at the beginning, we suspect that airlines will just fill up existing flights, which will actually mean less capacity for cargo because the belly will be full of bags. And it's only when they start upping the frequency that those rates might start to come down. So overall, there's there's still 
there's strong demand, likely to get stronger and still very limited capacity. I think anyone who's who's listening to this podcast would be fully aware of where we are on the shipping front with ships backed up all over the place, which we're going to come to a bit later on. But as you say, air cargo capacity is also sparse. I wrote a story in the Lodestar about what that means for express operators who are sitting quite pretty for the next few months and taking heavier cargo loads. Which brings me to my next guest who I interviewed in a vast sourcing company at Paris in the first week of October. So apologies, listeners, for the wearing noise of conveyor belts in the background. Delighted to welcome John Pearson, DHL Express CEO, to the Lodestar podcast for the first time. Hello, John. Good morning. How are you? Nice to see you again. I'm very good. Thank you. We're here on the launch of DHL Express's new 170 million euro international hub at Paris Charles Gaulle Airport. Firstly, uh, and not a small question, can you tell me how COVID has transformed the global express industry in terms of particularly the demands of your customers? Yeah, been a good question and been a busy time for everyone. You know, I remember in uh, March of last year, sat down and said, how much aviation cost can you take out of the network in, let's say it was March, but within a month, it was basically how much aviation uh, capacity can you put back into the network? So it was a B. For those English readers of yours, I'm talking about a square root sign, really, that it was a narrow V and the exit of the the exit of the V was higher than the entry of the V. And we've been in a sort of 15 or 18 month peak ever since then. What's that peak been created by? It's been created by online shopping and people having disposable income to go online and buy on B2C. And Express has typically been the chosen uh mode there. It's been created by things like the Suez Canal and supply chain congestion that meant that things typically on a boat went by air. Some things that went by air freight would go by express. Not everything moved mode, but a lot of stuff did go to sort of last chance saloon um, express operators that were guaranteeing um, reliability and more importantly, price reliability. Our pricing was very rational and according to our structure throughout the entire pandemic period. So, uh, yeah, we've been busy. We've had a tailwind. We don't see too much changing until Chinese New Year is the next inflection point. It may indeed not be an inflection point. It may be more of the same after Chinese New Year because we don't anticipate many long-haul intercon carriers and flights coming back. And if they don't come back, then our world is quite similar to what it was this year. You mentioned the lack of belly hole capacity there. We've also got over 70 container ships queued up off the west coast of the US. Uh, and that's the only place where we've got congestion and delays on the shipping side. As you go into Q4, is that going to be a huge benefit to you as an express operator with those other modes not functioning as well as they yep. possibly could? No, I think everything points to us, you know, I don't want to see it as a, a great commercial windfall. It's just simply not how we look at it. Um, but everything points to us having the mother of all peak seasons, just the rhetoric in the English press, which is where you're from, reading the same newspapers I do about fuel crisis, lorry driver crisis, supply chain congestion. You won't even get a turkey on your Christmas table. That points to people saying, let's just ring Express, get an Express shipment. We've had... Uh, large multinationals, uh, no names mentioning, but large multinationals coming to us and say, we're, we're swapping these 10 or 15 lanes all from air freight to express. Admittedly, somewhat exotic lanes and maybe slightly harder to get to places, but nevertheless, making a statement that all that traffic would ship from air freight with some other carrier other than a DPDHL group company 
to express. And those things really are a seismic shifts in, uh, you know, when it comes to whatever the origin of that material is, you know, there's a lot more on the dock than there was the night before. You mentioned a cash windfall there. You have had a cash windfall over this year. You've had amazing results. Where do you put all that cash now? Are you going to see acquisitions? Are we going to see even more investments than we've seen here in this Paris facility? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, a decent operating result doesn't mean more M&A. You know, we've, in our DGF division, is, is, uh, is looking at Hillebrand, beer, wine, and spirits. But you know, in terms of my division, uh, we're not looking at any more acquisitions. We'll continue to reinvest in aviation, reinvest in our network, 170 million here, 120 million in Lyon. And... Um, just continue to be focused on on serving our customers. Thanks for joining me on the Lowestar Podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to see you here. So guys, I think we've probably had more perfect, perfect storms. We've had more unprecedented than the history of the language has ever known before. I heard purple unicorns, which I don't even know what it means the other day, but it sounds good. <laughs> now we've got the mother of all peak seasons. Is that analysis correct? Is this the mother of all peak seasons Q4 this year? Such a hard question to answer, isn't it? From a shipping side, it feels like we've been in a peak season for the last six months. Peak season normally refers to the time when capacity is, is most heavily utilised. Well, capacity has been 100% utilised since the beginning of the year, even going back into 2020. So we've had an 18-month shipping peak season. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you can't really have a peak season unless you have a slack season. You know, they work in contrast to each other. Without having a slack season, it's very difficult this has just been a, a peak two years. Alex, the air freight peak season is normally slightly slightly easier to pin down. Would you say that Q4 for this year is going to be surpass all others? You, the rates, that, numbers that you were talking about sounds like it probably will. Well, at the moment, it looks like rates are about to hit the peak they did at the start of the pandemic. So the sort of May 2020, when everyone was flying in PPE and there was that hideous rush around the world to get everything moved. And it looks like rates are nearly at that point again. That was an astonishing sort of record high. And it looks like we're going to be there again. So, so yeah, I would say that it's looking like it's going to be, as people say, a pretty messy peak, to be honest. Both of those markets, ocean and air, I mean, they're underpinned by a lack of capacity for different reasons. One of the reasons DHL Express has racked up record profits during the pandemic is they ordered almost two dozen freighters before the pandemic actually hit, and it had 14 of them available for large chunks, which has proved very profitable. They plan to keep on investing, but DHL isn't alone in sitting on a big pile of cash. Alex, are we are we seeing a surge in order of freighters? Well, the freighter operators have actually got quite a problem. The, yeah, they've 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 got money, but the difficulty is the freighters themselves. So Airbus is talking about bringing out a new uh, an A350-1000 freighter and Boeing's talking about 777X, but they haven't launched those production lines yet. And the 747 ceases production in 2022 and there are environmental rule changes that are going to make life a bit more difficult. So there is that. I, I spoke to Cargo Lux after their full year results in March. I think they made something like 767 million or something which, as uh, the CEO said to me, that's only four planes. He was also concerned that it's going to be harder to buy on the second-hand market because of environmental concerns, which will mean bankers are less up for financing it. So although there is ordering, obviously, there is a slight difficulty for freighter operators about what they're going to order. And obviously, it takes a long time to come on stream. So 
there's there's a slight gap. I think the freighter conversion market is probably the more interesting and busy section right now. But again, all those slots are booked up for, I believe, another year or so at the moment. And Alex, it's not just traditional freighter operators or airlines that are looking at this sector, is it? No, it's not. I mean, you have CMA, CGM Air Cargo recently um, bought two 777s. I did hear from someone, although I'm not sure I believe it, that um, other shipping lines have been looking at getting AOCs or aircraft operating certificates. I mean, I think one of the interesting things is that the forwarders have charted a loss of capacity and how long they will stay in that market for. I believe some have signed up for even up to three years. So I think in some ways the market is going to look a bit different, but Ultimately, I suspect it will go back to where it was before and that and the forwarders will come out. But CMA, CGM is clearly going to stay in air cargo. And with shipping lines with a lot of cash, maybe there'll be more entering in. I'm sure that we'll see some more investment in that area, of course, if there's money to be made. Now, Gav, here in the UK, we're experiencing, I don't know if pain is the right word, but certainly we're feeling the direct impact of another shortage, and that's the lack of truck drivers. Now, we're going to look at this through the prism of UK logistics as a, as a structure by talking to a freight forwarder at the sharp end of this in a moment. But first, can you just explain to listeners how debilitating this has been for the UK these past few weeks? I've been covering the driver shortage crisis, as it has been called, uh, for 20 years. I mean, I'd go back to 2000 and it was, you know, the, the industry was talking about a shortage of 15,000 drivers. And it never, at, at no point has it ever been um, addressed by the authorities. And here we are now, we're looking at a shortage of 100,000 drivers. You know, it's been compounded by a number of factors. The The demand for drivers has gone up over that period because you've got the, the e-commerce companies and all the, the various van drivers. Directly, though, it's hitting, as listeners might well have seen in the in the news, it's been hitting, um, particularly hitting fuel deliveries, petrol and diesel deliveries to um, petrol station forecourts. To the extent that we've returned to the dark old days of 2001 when tanker drivers actually went on strike in the UK and brought the distribution of fuel virtually to a standstill. Now, Mike, you and I used to work together at this time. With the blockades of the tanker drivers at the fuel refineries back in 2001, I mean, that was actually that was addressed by the government. I mean, Blair went into direct negotiations with the drivers to increase their pay and stuff. We've got a slightly different government. Contrast that with... The approach of our present incumbent, who appears to be blaming the industry's problems on the industry itself. Well, I'm try- trying to bring some balance here, Gav. The government is now issuing short-term visas to EU drivers. I particularly like Mike Weir's excellent analysis of this topic in the Low Star Premium, which I'd urge anyone who's listening to check out. Uh, it's funny and it's full of insight. And I just want to throw this quote at you, Gav, because I remember covering it all. And this sort of, it's a different type of supply chain, supply side issue that we have with drivers at the moment, isn't it? Back from those days when we were both covering this story 20 years ago. Uh, and, and Mike Weir wrote, a government which fundamentally built its election victory on keeping foreigners out is unlikely to beg those who heeded the message to come back in any great numbers. Is that where we are then? Are we, are we just stuck here, Gav? Yeah, I think we are. No, I, we are. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you bring bring Mike up here because, I mean, Mike, he holds an HGV license. He was an HGV driver for three or four years, about about a decade ago. 
And he left the industry because of a number of the reasons that truck drivers today complain about it, shortage of facilities, the treatment that drivers would have at their distribution places where they were dropping off, the long hours, all of these things. And to to issue, what, five there were 5,000 visas for a two-month period is, it's not going to solve anything at all. I mean... It's daft. I don't know why they would even bother doing that because it's it's not going to solve the driver shortage thing, and it and it doesn't seem to to really satisfy the more um, the more non-immigration flavoured MPs in the Tory party. Frankly, it's a daft situation because the logistics industry has seen this coming for the last five years. I mean, talk about a car crash happening in slow motion. This, is, this has been evident to anyone who's had the slightest sort of visibility or the slightest experience of, of how road haulage works in the UK. It's, it's been glaringly obvious. And yet they've told government about this, you know, time and time again. And yet it's continually fallen on deaf ears. And only when 100 metre queues to petrol stations and there's, and there's plenty of empty shelves in the, in the supermarket. So you ask any British shopper, and they will tell you that the supermarkets are only holding 75 to 80% of the normal inventory that they would do. It's only now that the government seems to realise it's a problem. It's daft. What strikes me is obviously we know that there's been a wide shortage of drivers for quite a sustained period. But people are saying that this isn't to do with Brexit. But there's only one market where you can't buy fuel or chickens and we're worried about turkeys for Christmas and pork. And pigs are being culled left, right and centre because yeah. there's no butchers. Which, yeah. but back to the transport logistics, I think this is a good point to bring in. Bryn Atherton is at the sharp end of all of this. He's the commercial director of UK-based forwarder, also Global Logistics. Hello, Bryn. Hi, Mike. Thanks uh, for having me. appreciate the opportunity to join you today. Bryn, as, uh, as Gav was, was mentioning, with uh, UK logistics systems being hit by what has been called a Bermuda Triangle of of headwinds, I guess, in the shape of Brexit, pandemic, rising demand. We've had some tax changes. There's been a hit on the number of truck drivers available in the past, and particularly, particularly this year. This shortage of truck drivers has been so severe that we've had these nationwide fuel shortages through September, early October. We're talking in the second week of October. How are UK logistics companies like your own coping, and what's the situation right now? Where are you seeing those major choke points? I think, to be honest, Mike, I think the problem is, is that the industry as a whole isn't coping. And at the moment, we're facing delays of, because of driver shortages and, and issues with transport. We're facing delays of two weeks just to organise an export container load these days, two to three weeks on import container collections off the port and deliveries to, to the final delivery points. And to sum it up, I mean, the largest haulier in, in the UK who I met with a couple of weeks ago, uh, told me at the time that they were currently receiving 1,300 jobs a day being requested. And that's on the basis that they only have 930 vehicles at any one point in the whole of the UK available to them. And that's without sickness or holidays or vehicle breakdowns, etc. So with the current situation where we've had COVID and there's COVID isolations, you know, we're going into a period of year with other sicknesses and holidays, then realistically, they probably only have actually 700 to 750 vehicles available to them nationwide. 
So at a time when the ports are full of containers that aren't being evacuated out of the countries and drivers can't take the containers off the ports, you know, we're heading towards a logjam situation with the ports that doesn't seem to be um, getting any better. And, and just this week, we've had to start organising a daily train from Liverpool to Birmingham to evacuate those containers off the port, allow some space to become available, and at the same time, take some of the pressure off the transport companies by moving container freight off the roads and back onto the rail and putting it into the central uh, belt of the country, into Birmingham depot, where drivers from other areas, such as the southeast or the southwest, will, will have to travel less miles to collect them. How's all this playing into your bottom line? What sort of increasing costs and, and transit delays are you seeing? Certainly, say transit delays, we're seeing two to three weeks on, on container deliveries or container collections at the moment, which, bearing in mind, it takes three to four weeks for a container to come from China to Liverpool. And then you're taking two to three weeks to get a container from Liverpool to Birmingham, you know, if, if you're not using the train service. So it's. It, it's unbelievable that the, the effect that the shortage of drivers is having. And from a cost point of view, you know, freight prices or transport prices have increased substantially. Um, certainly for the export market, carriers would subsidize transport rates in order to take the volume out, out of inland depots and move them back out to China, for instance, where containers were needed. What's happening now is that the shipping lines are no longer subsidizing those rates. Transport companies are tearing up the old contracts with the shipping lines and obviously requesting more money in order to keep the services moving. And at the same time, within the last week or so, we're now starting to see driver retention fees, which is a surcharge being added to haulage costs of anything between 40 and 75 pound per container. So the transport prices have gone up. And on top of that, we're now seeing surcharges being implemented. Talking about some of those surcharges, the Lodestar has been covering the hits taken by many liner customers uh, due to spiraling detention and demorage operations worldwide. How are you being affected in the UK on imports? It, it's hitting everyone. I mean, equipment stuck at the ports um, because of the driver situation. We can't get the equipment off ports. The carriers are reducing the free time because obviously. They want those containers back in circulation as quick as possible because while they're sat there doing nothing, they're not earning anything. So the free times that were previously offered are being cut. You know, the other reason for that is the port operators are putting pressure on the carriers to get the empties off the ports and get them, you know, get them back on the sea. But fortunately, when there's blank sailings, those empties are remaining on the port. So the port operators are putting pressure on the on the shipping lines. The shipping lines are passing that pressure on. So it's, you know, it's difficult explaining to our clients that whilst the various stakeholders in a supply chain all understand the issues with what's happening with the lack of drivers and transport, each stakeholder is actually increasing their costs. So we're telling our clients that, I'm sorry, we can't get a container off the port because there's no drivers. But unfortunately, whilst your container's there, Port operator is increasing the costs on the daily rent for that container being on, on the ground. Bryn, uh, I know you guys are all seas. You, you've worked with a, a series of partners around the world on your international services, and you're particularly strong in in South Asia. What's the situation there? Are you are you seeing comparable problems there to what you what you're struggling with in the UK? Yeah, I mean, our partners in India, Bangladesh, Pakistan. You know, they're all reporting similar issues and um, space availability. 
one of the biggest issues at the moment is container availability. A lot of, obviously, the, the freight prices rose to such an extent coming out of China, going to, coming back to Europe or into the US West Coast, that it makes sense to move empty containers straight to China and get them earning money as quick as possible at those sort of rate levels. So what's actually happening now is that there's not enough equipment for the demand at the moment now coming out of India because obviously supply chains have seen what's going on on in China or going on, sorry, in China over the last 12 months. And many people have switched their supply to India, Bangladesh and Pakistan. So the problems actually just move from one nation to another, I suppose. The other issue that I think is facing the Indian subcontinent is the effects of the local lockdowns and the regional lockdowns. It seems to be very, very um, different to the rest of the world where, like for the UK, for instance, the, the country shuts down. Well, in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh, generally they have regional lockdowns. So what can happen is one manufacturing area of, of the country suddenly has a lockdown, therefore nothing gets manufactured. Another area then has a later lockdown. Well, that area is the transit point, if you like, between the manufacturing area and the port. Then you may have another region that shuts down, which could be where the port is actually located. So, you know, Bangladesh is an area where we're seeing the port closures or COVID affecting port closures, um, which is then having a knock on effect, causing backlogging freight. So, yeah, I mean, we, we speak with our partners there because of all these constraints, because of the lack of equipment, because vessels are calling into these countries, because of the, the, sporadic port closures. We're seeing rate increases of over 50%. And just this week, we've actually seen rates from Bangladesh hitting levels that we've seen coming out of China now with people reporting 20 foot being anything in the region of nine to $11,000 freight key to key and 40 foot hitting $16,000. So where that supply chain has moved to in order to source relatively cheap production, the freight rates are following the pattern that it, it has done out of China over the last four months. And that's 16,000 uh, for a 40 foot into the UK from Bangladesh. Correct. And that's just the last couple of weeks. So we're talking late September, early October. Yeah. I mean, I know this because we we carry quite a lot of business coming from Bangladesh. Just two weeks ago, we moved a container at $9,000 um, out of Chittagong Port. The same client has asked us to do the same again. We've gone back to our partners and asked them if they can revalidate the rate and, and they've confirmed to us that freight rates have just hit $16,000. So um, safe to say that container's not moving. So Bryn, you, you're talking there about these sky-high freight rates and, and like the uncertainty you have with those fast changes between one rate and another just in a matter of weeks. But over the course of the last year or so, you've been taking some of these matters into your own hands by chartering vessels. Yes, we've been chartering vessels on a scale of between three and four vessels a month since February now. Um, what started off as just doing two vessels to try and plug a gap, we've um, we found that the demand from other freight forwarders and also from UK importers was such that we've we've ended up becoming a, a shipping line in, in a way. It's not something we set out to do, but just to ease the pain on the supply chains, we've now chartered. 37 vessels this year so far from China direct to Liverpool. We will continue to do this into 2022. And at the same time, because of the success of that and the media attention surrounding it, especially 
because of some of the big retailers, well-known retailers in the UK being featured in media reports about charter services and other media outlets are picking up on, on the current situation. We've been approached by US-based companies who have seen what we're doing and asked us to do the same thing in the States and ease the pressure for them. So three weeks ago, we started our first charter vessels from China going into the US West Coast um, and Canada, started in Vancouver, down to Tacoma, onto Seattle, and then through to Long Beach. And what sort of size vessels are we talking about? At the moment, the vessels tend to be between 1,100 and 1,400 TU per vessel. Most of what we've used previously tended to be combi vessels, so a mixture of break bulk and, and containerized vessels. We are now trying to source more container, actual container vessels, which we traditionally would have seen as feeder vessels. But if, you, if we put in maybe one or two of them a week at the moment, then it's certainly easing the pressures on the supply chain. Bryn Atherton, thank you very much for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. Thank you, Mike. Gab, that was interesting from Bryn there about the chartering. I mean, All Seas isn't the only company arranging its own charters, is it? No, I I think you'd probably find that in every major shipper's logistics department, someone has been given the task of trying to find ships. I mean, the most... um, the most noticed of which recently was Costco, not the Chinese shipping line Costco, but the the US, the giant US wholesaler Costco, which um, had its um, annual results last week. And in the in, in the analyst call, the CFO uh, revealed that the the company has chartered three vessels to operate on the Trans Pacific next year. And it's interesting when you look at it because on Low Star Premium, we we like to sort of play around with the numbers a bit. And the CFO said that the ships are able to carry 800 to 1,000 containers, which given the sort of nature of trans-Pacific shipping and the, the preponderance of 40-foot containers being used there, it was, we're looking at like a, a sort of a 1,600 to 2,500 TEU ship. And we, I was just then went to look at what sort of charter rate it, it would likely be paying for those vessels. On a 12-month deal... And on the capacity range that we were talking about, it's it's probably going to be paying between 36,000 US and 72,000 US a day per ship. So which over the course of a year and over the and, and across three vessels implies an annual cost of between 40 million and uh, and 80 million dollars. But it's worth noting that you know Costco actually has a sort of annual capex budget of around four billion. So actually, the economics of a big shipper chartering its own vessels are, are a sort of comparative drop in the ocean. It's far more important for them to have the, the supply of goods than to be worrying about what additional costs it may it, those may create. What do those chartering costs look like over a year then? So what we're looking at, Mike, is probably at an upper range that Costco will spend $100 million next year on chartering these three ships. Now, in full year 2021... Costco books its shipping costs against costs of general sales. So it's against merchandise costs. Full year 2021, merchandise costs for Costco were 170.7 billion. So the 100 million that they're spending on these three ships, I mean, it's not even a drop in the ocean. It's a molecule of a drop in the ocean. Those are very interesting numbers, and I'm sure a lot of shippers out there will be looking at them as they desperately search for capacity 
Now, just why there are so few ships available on the market, also why Coca-Cola is now chartering its own ships but not container ships, were subjects I recently addressed with Bjorn van Jensen. He's the VP Advisory Service at Global Supply Chain at Sea Intelligence, and he's also someone who knows a lot about buying logistic services thanks to his more than 16 years as Global Head of Procurement at Electrolux. Hello, Bjorn, and welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me. Bjorn, drawing on, on your wealth of experience that I mentioned on, on the intro there, what would you say is the current situation for those in the business of restocking inventories? What are their options as we speak now in the, the second week of October, more or less? To the extent that they have any, they're becoming fewer and fewer. It's very clear that there's a disastrously low level of inventories not only in North America, where they really are terribly low, particularly on the retail side, according to our numbers, but also increasingly so in the UK. And in Denmark, where I'm speaking to you from and where I'm based, it's becoming quite evident that you head out shopping. It hasn't quite hit grocery stores yet, but to the extent where, like me, you're currently moving into a new apartment and you need to go and buy stuff for it, that the global city crisis is evident and visible on retailer shelves right now in all kinds of small ways. And the options are, are running out. Clearly, if you're stocking for Halloween, well, good luck finding the aircraft because that's the only thing you're going to be able to get in that time frame. If you're restocking for Christmas, but right now, uh, your only option is to pay the piper and, and, and hope that you get the space. But you're really getting to a point where there is no space left to be had. If you are looking for space, the large carriers are probably where you need to go because the small carriers are almost at the point. They are at the point where the vessels are filled to bursting, they are full to bursting with key accounts, where, where that long tail of smallish customers who would ship, you know, anything for any price, and that tail has been locked off in favor of key clients with the small carriers, as I said. The big ones... You can still get space, not for love, but for money. Anything and everybody is for sale if the price is right. Yeah, but it's going to be a steep price. Uh, we're seeing a dramatic uptick as well on the air cargo side. Lots of companies trying to bring aircraft on stream. A lot of shippers are right now looking at aircraft as their only option. Do they like it? No, they don't like it. Air cargo is probably kilo for kilo, 20 times the cost of ocean freight. But you have no other options, then you have no other options. And so there just aren't that many of them that could be bought back online. Uh, it really is, you know, we were just talking about what analogy to use. I've run out of the perfect storms and black swans and babies of black swans and purple unicorns. And I don't even know what to say anymore from a, from a supply standpoint. It's an absolute disaster. Is one of the options what we've seen, uh, the sort of extreme measures that we saw from Coca-Cola, you know, you can't get hold of a container ship, get hold of wherever you can uh, and throw your product on onto it. Some cargo will be able to, to, to move through a mode like that. Coke decided to go with bulk carriers and presumably they've either adapted the vessels or more likely adapted their own packaging for that to be accommodated because a bulk vessel, you know, potentially is not cellularized and therefore cannot carry containers except maybe on the hatch covers that were on deck. And those hatch covers cannot carry that much uh, working load before they snap. So you're really looking at most bulk carriers would give you 500 TU, 600 TU, maybe 800 if you were lucky and you had very lightweight cargo. 
not really a solution in the long term. The only thing that, that this buys you doesn't buy cost savings, by the way. It's a frightfully expensive option, considering that your unit cost per container carrier is going to be sky high. It is not a solution in terms of congestion because what those ships don't have wings. They can't land at airports. They're subject to the same congestion issues that the big boys are subject to in the very same ports. What it does give you is space, right? So if you have your own ship, well, then you're on it and no one else is. So you'll get that, but you won't get cost competitive solution. You won't get a solution to the congestion situation or the hinterland situation, but at least you will get some space. Uh, and, and that's as good as it's going to get at the moment. Coca-Cola is not the only one. A couple of big US retailers have done it. Dollar General has done it. Walmart has done it. Target has done it. Uh, where a couple of BCOs have even done it. Some tire manufacturers, for example. And they all say the same thing. All this got us was space, but at least we got that. But is it a solution to where are you going to find enough bulk carriers or converted multi-purpose vessels in the world to replace the fleet of CMA CGM? You're not, are you? So it's not a panacea in any way. It's also fantastic publicity, of course, for the shippers who go down that route. And then lastly, it can work. In, in a case where having goods on shelves and the value of that, which should not be underestimated, particularly in the holidays, the value of, of that far exceeds the investment you're going to have to make in some increased shipping costs. And that calculation is taking place in the minds of supply chain professionals and the C-suite. What is the value, or rather, what's the cost of doing nothing versus what's the value of doing something and perhaps... If your name is, is Coca-Cola, what's the value of us having cans on shelves when a well-known competitor doesn't? It's huge. Just looking into 2022, we've already seen in late September, early October, factory closures in China to cut emissions. And we've got some other factors that are in play as well. We've got COP26 in November taking place in Glasgow in the UK. China's expected to make some major commitments there on emissions. We also have the Beijing Winter Olympics on the 4th of February. Now, ahead of the Beijing Olympics in 2008, China took drastic steps to improve air quality, including closing factories in large parts of the region. Could the same happen again? And, and what does that mean for China's exporting capacity and production output as we head into those Chinese New Year holidays in February next year at the same time as the Olympics? It means something for sure. I think the jury is still out on on exactly what it means and what it means is largely going to be a function of how extensive this exercise is going to be. If this is going to last for months and months and months, well, then clearly there's going to be an issue with China's output, which may or may not have an effect on rates. I stress may or may not, because there's so much in the pipeline already, pent up demand, looking for shipping. Uh, we actually calculated at one point that if you turned off China right now, like the ultimate emission cut, switch, find the main switch for China and turn it off, countries down, closed, no movement out of ports. Given the congestion situation and the number of vessels that are currently coming, you would still be receiving and clearing cargo in Long Beach in six months. 
So if we're talking six months, even in those extreme circumstances... That takes us to Chinese you know, a little bit beyond C and Y. So we're talking way into 2022. Yeah, so, so, so that, is, that is to say I don't see a downward pressure on rates coming from this particular situation. I mean, obviously, on the other hand, you do have events in China where this does happen. It has happened during COVID that no discernible effect on shipping volumes uh, once we got over that first scare in, in March and April of last year. No discernible effect. You were supposedly currently in the middle of golden week. No discernible effects on shipping volumes because carriers are also very good at blanking sailings now to match supply and demand, right? Chinese New Year, historically speculated on the effect. It's a well-known event. People plan for this long ahead, far ahead. Uh, obviously gotten complicated to plan for it right now, but it's not like that's not a black swan. Chinese New Year is potentially not a black swan. All right. People are planning for it one way or the other. Then you've got to throw all kinds of jokers into the deck as well. What happens, for example, will China close down for Chinese New Year? Or will there be a fourth wave or fifth wave or whatever we're on of the pandemic, which means workers can't travel to, to, to reunite with their families, which means they're going to stay in work. We saw that in the last Chinese New Year, for example. It's just too early to speculate on, but if the underlying question really is, and I've heard it before, as you can tell, will this be what finally sends the red level down? I, I think the answer is on the, on the evidence that we have now, no. So when should people think or plan that maybe schedules get back on track, pricing starts stabilizing lower, lower level? Schedules haven't been back on track in, in, in 20 years. Uh, Depends on how you define back on track. It's a little bit the same as how do you define normal, right? How long is a piece of string? That was the word I was trying to avoid. No, no, but, 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 but then build it up then, right? If, if normal means a return to a dramatic oversupply situation and weak demand, that ain't going to happen anytime soon. Demand is not going to change. And, and I dare say if we have more COVID waves coming in, it might actually grow, right? Because I think we can all agree that COVID, which was thought by everyone to be the, 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 the big dip, turned out to be the exact opposite. And there's no reason why a third or fourth wave should cause any kind of different movements in the market. Oversupply? No. Uh, right now, the, the fleet is right-sized to the volumes of demand. And then, as I said, we've got the congestion issues that create the real problem. is isn't going to change. And the only thing that can change in order to bring those rates back down you know, in any meaningful way, is an increase in supply. The increase in supply is clearly going to come in the form of new vessels. There are an awful lot of new vessels on order out there, close to 350 container vessels alone, near record, not quite the record of 2011, but nearly there. But the bad news, which I think is very well publicized as well, is the first one of those large container is only going to hit the water in quarter four, 2023, right? So anybody pinning their hopes on all these new vessels they keep hearing about should do themselves a favor and check when these vessels will actually arrive. So we're predicting right now, end of 2022, at least before we have this under control in the sense of the supply-demand balance, in terms of vessel scheduling balance, my personal opinion, gut feel based on both working with the carrier uh, back in the day Funnily enough, as vessel scheduling manager, and and also on my overall experience on the buy side and the advisory side, 
is surgery reliability will not be fixed until the congestion problems are fixed. And that could be a very long time from now. We are seeing record level, rather record low level of accuracy. I think we're at something like 33% of us right now arrive on time to find as plus minus one day. That is appallingly low. The best we saw in the good days a year and a half ago were some carriers up in the high 70s, low 80s. That isn't going to come back anytime soon. And, and will we ever get to 100? No, we will not. You, you mentioned the August figures there from Sea Intelligence, 33.6%, I think it was, reliability, which is yeah. record low for, for our listeners. Uh, yeah. Presumably, based on the number of vessels that were tied up at port during September and the worsening situation, particularly on the U.S. West Coast, you would anticipate those numbers deteriorating when they come out for September. Yes, I would anticipate that. I, I don't see it getting any better. And when we when we build our our forecast, somewhat depressing forecast that nothing is going to change until end of twenty two, it's a very long time frame for anyone in this business. What we did was we took a couple of proxies for it. For example, the engine bankruptcy, the uh, the last U.S. West Coast labor dispute, which by the way might also return next year because the contract is up for renewal. How long did it take to recover then before there was a pressure on the infrastructure? And, and if you extrapolate from that, we won't have solved this issue until everything else going right. We won't solve this issue until 2022, but this is logistics and nothing ever goes completely right. Uh, not everything goes completely right at the same time as this life. So anybody right now who says, well, we, we think the market will normalize it. Q1 or Q2 of next year, whatever they're smoking, I would like it if they could send me some of it because I need it too. Bjorn van Genten, thank you very much for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. No problem. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Gav, just listening to Bjorn there, I mean, what's your take on how long all of this might happen given how much capacity is tied up around the world? Bjorn has far greater levels of expertise than I have. So, you know, um, I'm a normally guide, but I am a cynic. And um, it looks to me, if given all the hinterland problems, given the container restitution problems, given the fact that so much inventory now is in the wrong place, you know, you've got goods sitting in ports that were summer goods, you know, and we're, we're now into winter. What happens to those goods? Do they wait around for next summer? All that sort of thing. I, I would have thought that it's not really going to be in the clear until 2023. Alex, the Lodestar has been going from strength to strength throughout the pandemic. Have you been surprised by how much, uh, I guess, your baby has flourished in lockdowns and just how much interest there is in the industry from outside of our, our niche in, in the global economy or the business trade press? I mean, it's been it's been phenomenal, really. You know, readership's much, much larger than it was. And I think everyone's now aware of their own relationships with logistics. So it's become a sort of wider subject than it ever was before. And I think in terms of the load start, people in logistics are just desperate for information. Where's their ship? Which ports are congested? Who's got COVID in Ningbo? Whatever it is, it's become information like that's become quite a vital part of sort of logistics management. And our, our main readership's forwarders. And I think they're very keen for shippers to understand the problems and to hear it from an independent source. So there's no point of 
forward to telling a shipper that, oh, it's going to cost you more because they don't believe them. They need to see it somewhere else. They need to see that independent sort of validation of those things. So it's a lot about letting everybody know what's going on. I mean, yeah, it's been it's been quite hard work and it's been big news almost daily. You can't lose concentration for a minute really in this market. So I sort of totally understand those forwarders who say they're exhausted by the whole process because I'm starting to know how that feels. <laughs> I think all of this ties into some degree with how our industry has possibly been undervalued by business in general in the past and and also how in a way we perhaps underplay the significance of what this sector brings to the world. At this part, I'd like to dial in Paul Page at the Wall Street Journal, who's here to give his perspective on these points and how everything supply chain is playing in boardrooms right now. Hello, Paul. Hey, Mike, how are you doing? Very good, very good. Uh, you've obviously you've been covering all things supply chain for the Wall Street Journal for six years now, is it? I, I think? think so, something like that, yeah. As COVID sort of taken hold of the global economy, I think the mainstream press has has caught up with the fact that transportation and logistics should maybe not be considered as a backwater of trade and the economy. I, I was just interested to know how it, how it works at the Wall Street Journal. I had a, talking to a, a sports journalist friend of mine over in the UK, works at one of the national newspapers, and he says pretty much the, the rest of the reporters, they're not particularly interested in sports most of the year until Wimbledon rocks round or the World Cup when everything started, or I guess in the US it would be the NBA, the World Series or something like that. I know you're a basketball fan. Is it the same at the Wall Street Journal? Have you gone from back page, front page? Are, are you finding that your reporters that might cover other stories normally, are, are they coming to you for your expertise or for, or for more understanding of some of these issues? Is it more important to the paper? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I try to bring that perspective sources in some cases of uh, insight, sometimes just simply explaining how something works. I mean, transportation is all about things working. It's all about things moving, gears moving. And, and people are more interested now in how exactly does that work? What does a freight forwarder do? Who are we talking about here? How does this sit? When someone tells me that something is happening at a, at a port, what does that mean? What's the difference between a port and a terminal? I mean, very simple stuff that you and I live with every day. You know, hopefully I'll provide a little more insight than just the definitions of terms, but sort of providing that perspective and an idea that, look, this is what's significant here. This is why this is different. This is why this is the same over here. Uh, this is what you look for. This is a good thing to say, ask the supply chain manager about. Do you think that the attention will maybe ebb you know, some of these stories, I mean, I'm thinking a little bit on the tabloid front, perhaps, but the stories are, oh, the, the supermarket shelves are going to be empty. You won't be able to get your Christmas presents in the holiday season, that type of thing. Once those low fruit stories are gone, do you think what I would classify as mainstream media, but you get a rough idea what I mean, do you think the attention will go away from the supply chain or, or as from a media viewpoint, or do you think that COVID sort of changed things and people of the perspective of general perspective has sort of zoomed in slightly? You know, to some extent it will, but I also think it's incumbent on people, both journalists and people in companies and businesses, the logistics companies, uh, the supply chain managers at companies to not lose that momentum and sort of take a lesson from this that to, to understand that what they're doing and what we're covering is important and to show people why. And there are stories out there that are to be written that aren't necessarily crisis, you know, sh 
shelves are going to be empty kinds of stories. And that this challenges us in a way to, to keep those stories going. You know, years ago, I was, I remember talking to some freight forwarders in the U.S. and, and they were complaining about something going on in Washington, whatever it was. And I looked at them and, and said, look, you guys, your company employs 200 people in this town, whatever the town was. That's a lot of people. People care about that. And they were sort of seeing themselves in a different area. And, you know, look, the connection has been made. People now understand what logistics companies do and how it works. And it's incumbent, I think, it, um, on logistics companies to keep that going, to, to show how they tie into business, into a community, into um, keeping the economy moving. It's important for journalists like yourself and your colleagues to keep that momentum by making that connection between what logistics companies and operations do and what the economy does and how it affects people in their daily lives. There was two stories in your report today that caught my eye. One was on uh, restocking by merchants, including Target and Best Buy. And then there was a second pointing out that transportation costs are no longer an afterthought, but a major source of financial pain for businesses. All those two trends, we've got restocking and we've got this transportation cost pain. Does that indicate that there's more of this to come and that boardroom should be preparing for it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think there there is is more of this to come. I think the dynamics in, in, in shipping industry, particularly the ocean shipping industry, but also in air freight, certainly in the international side, in supply chain management generally are going in that direction. I, I think a lot of good companies have always known that, but... I, I think it's clearly going in that direction and they're going to have to take these things into account. You know, the, I, I've seen a lot of uh, logistics companies, transportation companies sort of uh, expressing some pain that, gee, you guys are complaining about high rates right now, but you weren't celebrating or, or giving us any credit when we had the rates very low. Uh, that's an interesting dynamic. And, and I think, again, it's sort of incumbent on the transportation industry to show their value and going forward uh, and to demonstrate what they do and perhaps not to be so invisible, but to take a little more, more effort in marketing and presenting themselves and, and, and sort of showing how they fit into a company's and their customers' larger strategies. Paul Page, thank you very much for joining us and hope we, hopefully we can get you back soon. Thank you. I'd be glad to come over. Guys, just listening to Paul there, I suppose if the Wall Street Journal and other mainstream media has morphed into supply chain titles, the counterpoint to that is that Lodestar has gone rather mainstream itself. So just finally, as we finish, does that make you guys media moguls? And if so, is there anyone you <laughs> model yourselves on? <laughs> I'll rip at Murdoch all the way. <laughs> is that a no comment, Gav? <laughs> Um, if, if, if we are, it's completely serendipitous. <laughs> yeah. And, and as I said, it's before, not, it's not by design. Let me put no. it that <laughs> And these things are always cyclical. So when there's an up, there's a down. Thank you, Alex Lane. Thank you, Gavin Van Marl. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. That's brilliant, Mike. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Forto, for supporting this episode. An additional shout to the Baltic Exchange for giving us exclusive access to their fantastic range of regulated indices. And a big thanks also to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back soon.